Hello, everyone. Can you all hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. Okay. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, before we start, we're just going to have one announcement. Um, some of you might be aware that um, there have been four groups that have formed an alliance on Telegram, and we are now called the Resistance United Family. These groups are the one you are in, which is we are the 99%. Fight for, for the Kids, Resistance United GB, um, and Resistance United um, Israel. So, um, just want to say that uh, we will have a Q&A session at the end, so please keep your questions for, for right at the end, and we are recording, um, please be aware of that. Um, so, today we'll be joined by um, a special guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones. He is a prolific Catholic writer, he's a lecturer, and he's a truth journalist. Um, he seeks to defend traditional Catholic teachings and values from those seeking to undermine them. Thank you, Dr. Jo Jones, for joining us today. Uh, we welcome. would just like to share with you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> we just want to share with you that um, the audience you are speaking to will, are not following mainstream media. We are awake. We have a common understanding that we are at war. Um, it's an information war. Um, it's a war of deception, and we are hoping that we can get to the truth of the matter, which is why we asked you to join us. Um, there is a general love for the truth, and my hope is that, that we will gain knowledge and that we will be able to stand our ground and um, stand in our power. So if you could please, Dr. Jones, give us just, just give our listeners a short introduction of who you are and where you are, what you are currently doing now. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Uh, the truth is great and it will prevail. Uh, and uh, we're seeing that now uh, prevailing through adversity. God permits evil things to happen because he can use them to bring about good. And the good that first manifests itself is consciousness. We become aware of the situation in a way that we do not, uh, we were not before, uh, which is in some sense the story of my life as well. I started off uh, wanting to be a professor of American literature, got a PhD in 1979 from Temple University, uh, then got a job at Catholic College, St. Mary's in South Bend, Indiana, moved my family out here and was fired uh, one year later for my stand against abortion. So I thought this was uh, kind of surprising. How can you get fired for being against abortion at a Catholic college? But uh, the feminists had taken it over during the 1970s, and they had control, and abortion was their sacrament, and that was the end of the story. So at that point, my prayer was, Lord, why did you lead us out of Egypt only to perish in the wilderness? Uh, but it later became the prayer of Joseph or the statement of Joseph, which is basically that when he was uh, confronted his brothers in Egypt when they ran out of food and they needed him after they sold him into slavery, he said to them, the evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. And that, I think, is the story of human history, that God has to allow uh, uh, evil because it's bound up with free will. And God created uh, creatures 
rational creatures, and you know you're rational because you can choose to do something. Uh, whereas animals do not choose. They are pr uh, prisoners of their own uh, mechanisms, their own uh, conditioning, their own instincts. So uh, we have to accept evil as the price of um, freedom, the price of rationality. And so after I got fired uh, from St. Mary's, I decided to get out of academe, which was another great decision. Uh, glad I did at that point. Uh, we're talking about 1980 now. And I started a magazine called Culture Wars Mag. No, I'm sorry. I started a magazine called Fidelity Magazine. And that eventually became Culture Wars Magazine, which is what it is today. And in December, we, we will celebrate our 40th anniversary. Uh, a precarious existence. There's hardly probably any more or more precarious existence than a magazine. 90% of them go out of existence within six months. And I've been doing this for 40 years now. Uh, because I left academe, I had the freedom to, 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 to educate myself by uh, researching topics that no one was allowed to talk about. Uh, one of them, uh, various topics. The main topic at that point was sexuality. And then I got to the real story of sexuality as opposed to the surface story. And that led me to the book called Libido Dominandi, where I show that sexual liberation is a form of political control. Uh, after I, after I wrote that book, I, I was, uh, uh, an incident occurred, which I've talked about many times. The Israelis uh, invaded Ramallah, uh, took over the TV stations, Palestinian TV stations, and they started broadcasting pornography over these TV stations. That's an incident that was uh, allowed by God to teach us all a lesson. And the lesson there is that pornography is a weapon, and it's uh, always a form of... Uh, psychological warfare and the purpose of it is to control and uh, render people helpless and isolated and so that's where uh that's where i entered uh, the stream of uh, internet history 2019 there was a, a a large number of people awoke to that fact even though the book had been written 25 years ago and there was a protest against pornography uh, and uh, rolling stone magazine got so upset that they called everybody who uh, boycotted pornography, uh, an anti-Semite, uh, anti-Semites. Uh, and then that, you know, we were at war at that point. This was an uprising against the oligarchs. 2019 was the uprising on the internet. It was the deplatforming uh, battle, and that led to COVID, and that led to the situation we're in today. At war, covert, low-grade warfare that is covering the entire world. I guess the first really... A uh, world war in human history. Yes. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, let's dive into it. So tonight we would like to talk about the hypersexuality and the ethnic uh, cleansing by Urban Renewal. You wrote a book about that. Cultural decay of the West, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and the battle between the logos and the anti-logos. So, Dr. Jones, could we start with the war on the family? What is the impact of sexual liberation and the subversion of morals on the family and, su and subsequently on society? Yeah, uh, well, this uh, the, the sexuality is such a powerful force that it would... It wasn't long before people realized they could mobilize it politically. And uh, the, the story of Samson and Delilah in the Bible is an example of 
using uh, uh, using sexuality as a weapon. Uh, Samson was undefeatable in battle, but uh, uh, when he fell in love with Delilah, she took control over him, and he ended up she ended up gouging his eyes out. And that leads us to one of the main issues here, uh, which is what Aquinas would say is that lust makes you blind. And that's why it's a good weapon, because a blind opponent is no opponent. And so over this period of time, the, the, the people understood that uh, uh, sexuality, uh, basically, if you control sexuality, you control the culture. Uh, it's that important. And the man who understood this best in the ancient world was Euripides, and he wrote a play called The Bacchae, which is about women uh, who leave their looms, they leave their homes, and they go off uh, to worship the Asiatic god Dionysus, uh, naked, dancing naked on the mountainside. Uh, the king of Pentheus uh, realizes this is the end of the social order, so he orders Dionysus captured. Dionysus subverts his own authority by asking him if he would like to see the women dance naked on the mountainside. He says yes. He goes up. He's torn apart. Uh, ends up uh, his head on the lap of his mother. His mother slowly comes out of this Dionysian intoxication, and uh, she says, I see horror. I see suffering. I see grief. Well, that's the scenario that got played out on us over the last 200 years. Uh, it, 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 these pe people, beginning with the Marquis de Sade at the time of the French Revolution, realized that uh, if you take control of sexuality, if you liberate it from the moral law, it becomes a very powerful form of control. Uh, Wilhelm Reich, uh, uh, the, the Jew from Austria, uh, who was also uh, a Freudian and a Marxist, uh, wrote his book, uh, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, in the 1930s, 1933, I believe, going into detail about how this could be implemented. And he became the hero of the 68 revolution. He ended up on the cover of the New York Times magazine uh, because at this point, uh, powerful forces had gotten involved in the manipulation of sexuality as a form of control. In the United States, uh, the most significant figure was Alfred Kinsey, who wrote the Kinsey Reports. He was funded by the Rockefellers. And if you read my book, uh, Libido Dominandi, you'll see that I got uh, a memo from his, uh, uh, the Rockefeller archives uh, from Wardell Pomeroy, who was his main assistant, who told the draft board in the 1940s, early 1940s, that he needed an exemption because he was working on this project of how to control masses of people. So it was overt there. They never said it publicly, but it was overt. They knew what they were doing. This is why the Rockefellers got involved in it. And this is, at that point, it was birth control. Uh, uh, that was the, the main threat to the WASP ruling class were two groups of people, Catholics and Negroes, uh, neither of whom used contraception. And so, therefore, they need to be brought under control. They were done by various ways. And then the, it moved uh, as... As the WASP ruling class declined in power and the Jewish, the new rising Jewish uh, ruling class rose in power, abortion became the issue. And then uh, they, they, the Jews broke the production code in Hollywood in 1965. And as a result of that, they basically took over. They defeated the Catholics in cultural battle and basically took over the media. And so at this point, they have total control, full spectrum dominance over what we can hear and talk about. That, as I said, uh, became an issue with uh, in 1919 when suddenly people realized that uh, uh, 
they could say things, uh, and uh, the Jews were upset. So the Jews launched through the ADL, launched their campaign uh, against hate speech, which is basically any speech that Jews don't like. And uh, a lot of deplatforming followed. But over this period of time, what happened is that the family got weaker and weaker and weaker. And as a result, uh, children, everyone uh, was more and more vulnerable to social engineering. The social engineering, which is the basis and the reason for the sexual liberation in the first place. That's precisely the situation we're in right now. People waking up and realizing this is how do we get into this situation? And that's why I wrote that book. I understand. I always hear the, the question, like, where are the men? So uh, the question is, do you think that legalizing divorce, the use of uh, contraceptives, gay marriage, the push, the push for uh, transgenderism, uh, all of that is like weapons used against us, against the family, against the traditions? Yes, of course it is. Uh, what, what's, because the family is what gives you strength. You you learn you you learn your language from the family, which is basically your the source of your identity, your ethnic identity. You learn that from your mother. You learn everything from the family. You learn what is right and what is wrong, and you're protected there. And as a result, you grow strong enough to resist the forces that you're going to eventually meet up with in the culture. Well, if you destroy the family, then the state takes over and the state educates you or the, the proxies for the state, the media. The media are proxies for the state. They take over and they educate you. So just to give you one instance of this, just uh, uh, yesterday, an uh, eight-year-old girl says to my uh, grandson, do you know that two women can marry each other and two men can marry each other? Now, what is an eight-year-old saying something like this for other than the fact, what does this mean? This means that the, the parents, the state is total, in total control of this child's mind. And so as a result, they won't have to worry about any type of disruption of their power from people like this. That's the whole goal of this thing. That's the reason for the destruction of the family. I understand. So they, are, so they basically did that mostly through the third wave of feminism. Would that, be, would that feminism, be correct? Feminism was one one um, moment in a a a, a war that uh, began in earnest after World War II. I mean, it, it would started in the 1920s in America because the Jews in Hollywood were constantly uh, uh, offending, transgressing uh, social boundaries. That led to the Legion of Decency, where the Catholics uh, tried to uh, basically impose the production code on Hollywood. That broke down in 1965, which was a crucial year because it was the end of the Second Vatican Council, and it was uh, the beginning of uh, the rise of Jewish power in earnest. The Jews broke the production code in 1965 with a Holocaust porn film called The Pawnbroker. They needed the Holocaust to break the code. They tried uh, one year earlier in 64 with a Dean Martin, Kim Novak film called Kiss Me Stupid, and it did work, didn't have the power. So they needed the Holocaust. Uh, and once they broke the code, then the Catholics were removed as a viable political opponent. The other, the other issue is, of course, the Second Vatican Council uh, state gave a, a document called Nostra Aetate, uh, which uh, in many ways just reaffirmed traditional church teaching, but it was taken to mean that the Catholic Church uh, apologized for 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. 
But more importantly, it meant that the Jews were our friends now. Well, this allowed them to just uh, engage in cultural warfare uh, with impunity. Uh, that's effectively what happened. And the result is the world we live in now. Yeah. My entire life, I'm 44 years old, I always knew that there are only two, two sexes, men and women, and uh, that's like biologically defined. And now everything is pushed into those so social construct of uh, genderism. Um, wh what do you think about that? Well, I think what we're seeing here is that, uh, you know, God allows these, uh, these ideologies to develop according to their own logic, their internal logic, and at a certain point, they become a reductio ad absurdum. So the more advanced this ideology becomes, the more it's cut off from reality. Okay, so let's say at the beginning, what is it, contraception? Well, probably have a lot of people who want to have sex without having children. So you've got a big audience there. Now it's to transgenderism, which is a minuscule audience, but uh, uh, which is exposing the basically uh, anti, uh, the anti-rational basis of this. This is so it turns out that what started off in one thing turns out to be a denial of reality. How long can we go uh, with this denial of reality? Let's take Rachel Levine, uh, the secretary in the Health and Human Services. Used to be a guy, claims that he's still a guy, but he claims now to be a woman, shot up with hormones. We have to pretend that he's a woman. Well, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And so he's, the inner logic of this dynamic of sexual liberation is going to destroy it, ultimately. That's, got, that's what's going to happen. This is sick, sick. Uh, it's insanity. Uh, we have a question about abortion, Little A. Yes. Um, so. You look at people like um, Zach Voorhees. He was a he's a Google whistleblower, and he posted all of the search terms that Google had hidden from the public. Uh, amongst those were when um, Ireland brought in abortion laws. Um, basically, Google hid all of the um, search terms on 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 these laws and on abortion, on anti-abortion that Google censored many uh, um, videos as such. Um, but it's not its not just in Ireland. I mean, you, you see in the UK a push for um, for more liberal um, abortion laws. You, you see the protests in Poland, if I'm not mistaken. It is worldwide, and it's almost, as they say, in lockstep, as if it's been uh, um, orchestrated. Um, do you think that there is a coincidence in why this is aligning worldwide? And if so, what do you think is the agenda behind it? Population control was the beginning of social engineering. And this came, this started to make its appearance in the 1920s. Now, it, it made its appearance in the 1920s because this is when the use of contraceptives became widespread among the English ruling class. Uh, uh, the Anglican Church was the first to break with traditional teaching on contraception by allowing it. Okay, at that point, uh, something happens. Okay, and if you want a cultural reference, you can read The Great Gatsby because this is where it's uh, documented in literature. But as soon as a group, one group starts to limit its own, uh, pop, its own uh, number of children through contraception, 
they're immediately worried about other groups that are not limiting their birth. And so the, the issue becomes differential fertility. And that was what happened in the 1920s. You can read about it in those in uh, Great Gatsby, if you want. It increased over this period of time so that the more they used contraception, the more they became upset about people who were not using it and began to wage war against them. That is where, that is where this led. Abortion was only the next uh, step. Now, abortion was Jewish. The, the contraceptive was the creation of the wasp. Uh, they created Planned Parenthood, uh, found Margaret Sanger as their front man, uh, created things like the Negro Project, which they're embarrassed about, but that was basically to destroy fertility among black people. It didn't work, but that was the intention. But then over the course of the, the, the 70s, by the 1970s, it became Jewish. This is when Bernard Nathanson and Lawrence Later got involved in New York City. And this was also a sign that the Jews were now rising in cultural power. They were kind of, at this point, they were equal to the wasp and they started uh, or after this period to displace the wasp. But basically the whole point of this is uh, abortion will destroy you uh, morally. Okay, you'll, you'll be devastated. You'll feel guilty because you murdered your own child. You will be weakened uh, spiritually, morally, however you want to talk about it. And as a result, you always, if, if you can't confess your sins the way Catholics can in confession, you will carry this guilt around with you and it will become intolerable. And so you need some type of release. And the, generally the release, uh, it could be drugs or it could be alcohol, but it could be a, a movement a political movement, and that's precisely what feminism was. It was, in many ways, it was the mobilization of guilt over abortion. Uh, and that's what it is today, to a large extent. And the Democratic Party has an irrevocable uh, commitment to that group of people. Uh, they need those people to, to, to mobilize the vote. That, that's, that's, I think, the big picture. That's why, that's why it's, that's why it's been promoted. That's why it's mandatory, uh, pretty much throughout the world. Uh, and if you disagree with it and you want your country to assert its uh, own identity, uh, the way Poland and Hungary have done, uh, they will, you will be punished. That's, they have been punished uh, because they understand that this is an attack on their ethnic identity. Uh, and uh, when they try to do something about it, instruments like the European Union will try and punish them uh, to prevent that. Thank you, sir. Uh, I remember that you mentioned in one of your talks uh, that the Irish have moved away from identifying themselves as being Irish towards being white, which you deem as a false identity. And uh, I would like to, to know more about that and how you define the difference between race, race and ethnicity. Yes, uh, the, the Irish... Um... Uh, you mentioned Google in Ireland and the, the banning. Ireland was conquered by Google. Now, the, the only way that I, and they use deception by algorithms and they prevented anyone from discussing this, but there was a, a lack of, a loss of faith there. That's why they were conquered. The Irish had moved away uh, from, from the Catholic faith. That was the main defense they had. And now I think they're starting to understand that it does uh, defend you. Okay? Now, in this information warfare, categories become important. And so if you get to impose the categories, uh, you basically win the debate because that's the, the debate. The outcome is often based on the premises and the categories create the premises. And so one of the major uh, issues in our day is identity theft. 
And the main vehicle right now uh, for identity theft is the category of white or uh, the identity, uh, white as an identity. There is, there. I am saying, I know a lot of these guys uh, get offended when I say this, but white is a category of the mind. It is not a category of reality. White is a category of the mind that gets imposed on people for political purposes every bit as much as black was a category of the mind that got imposed on people for also for political purposes. What you see here, and, and it's unique to America, it has no meaning whatsoever for Europe, certainly has no meaning for Ireland. Ireland was oppressed not because of any racial characteristics, not because they were white, but because they were Catholic and they were oppressed by a Protestant country known as uh, Great Britain. That's the simple fact of it. If anywhere you look in Europe, that's going to be the issue. So I was scheduled to debate this whole racial issue with Jared Taylor in Zagreb, which is what used to be Yugoslavia. And uh, there are people now in Yugoslavia who think they're white. Well, there's no such thing as white in Yugoslavia. White is only a function of black. And black and white came into existence as relevant political categories in the United States of America in the 17th century, in particular in Virginia. That's where the term first started being used uh, as, as meaningful. Up to that time, uh, no one used the term white. And they used it there to divide the workforce because half of the workforce were indentured servants, servants from uh, Scotland and Ireland, and half of them were chattel slaves from Africa. And if they got together, they could probably overthrow the regime or ask for higher wages. So they divided them. This is always the stra strategy. This, to this day, it is the strategy by using the term white. You demonize white people uh, because this will create racial conflict. And once you have racial conflict, then you can uh, manipulate the conflict uh, uh, for the benefit of the oligarchs. That is what's happening now. It began in earnest in 1954 in the United States of America when the Supreme Court issued a uh, Supreme Court decision uh, called Brown versus School Board outlawing segregated schools. This made categories like black and white the official categories of the United States of America. What it did was ignore ethnicity. So at the same year, there's a book, uh, a Jew came out with a book called Protestant Catholic Jew, um, in which he said ethnicity is the basis of identity in America. America is a country that has three different ethnic groups based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. And that over a period of three generations, you assimilate according to uh, your religion. And so religion and ethnicity are the same thing in America as they were in, in uh, Yugoslavia. And that's the real basis of identity. It's called the triple melting pot. It was a sociological theory. Uh, and uh, it is the true definition of identity. Uh, identity in America. There was never, the government wanted to have a unified identity. It never worked. It was always Protestant, Catholic, Jew. To this day, I think that is the reality. So that when you're talking about a white guy, what do you mean by a, what is a white guy? A white guy is a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore. That's he's a, a white guy is a, is someone who has lost his identity. So uh, Frody Mityord, uh, the guy who was organizing that conference uh, in Zagreb, which still hasn't taken place, uh, is a Lutheran from Norway. I mean, that's pretty much his identity. He speaks Norwegian. 
He has this religious identity. But what happened over this period of time is the Lutheran church simply collapsed. That gave him, brought about an identity crisis, and he filled that identity crisis by becoming white. That is what's happened to large segments of the population in Europe right now. All of the Protestant countries, like England, for example, uh, 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 these people live in countries where Protestantism has collapsed as a force in society. Okay, it was a bad idea from the beginning, if you want my opinion, but it collapsed. It held the social order together for a while, and now after 500 years, it collapsed. And now it's creating this identity crisis, and people are looking around, well, what's my identity? And they're coming across being white uh, because that is the official identity marker of, uh, along with black, of the American empire, which now controls the world. So it comes like last summer, two, two summers ago in uh, St. Louis, no, last summer, the Catholics, uh, the, there's a, a wave of iconoclasm. A guy who calls himself a Muslim wants to tear down the statue of St. Louis, and he knows he's going to, he can do it if he can, convicts the other side of being white. So he imposes this identity theft. He imposes this white identity, calls the people who are protesting. Uh, want the statue to remain, calls him white supremacist because he knows if he can make that label stick, he will win. I entered the discussion at this point and I said, why are all those white supremacists praying the rosary? They're not white, they're Catholic. And I, once I reasserted that identity, I, I, I debated the guy. It's not as if we didn't have some kind of conflict. I think, uh, I think we won. We, the Catholics, won because we were able to reassert uh, the identity uh, uh, the real identity and uh, uh, collapse this narrative, this racial narrative. In in light of what you said, um, we recently interviewed um, an Orthodox um, a rabbi, and we asked him exactly this question: How would you define a Jew? And he said he would define a Jew by someone who practices uh, Judaism. Um, a lot of people, um, if they are Jews, they would discouple from Zionism. Some would see themselves as Israelis. Others would see themselves as Hebrews. So there's quite a, um, a, a many opinions on the matter, and it's, it's quite a huge debate. Um, in light of what you said, I, I would like to know what your view is. How would you define a Jew um, in terms of, um, obviously, race, ethnicity, and, and such? a Jew, a Hebrew, an Israeli, and, and maybe even a Zionist. Yes, this is an important issue. It's the issue I had to confront when I wrote The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit because uh, the Jews will never tell you, they'll never be straight about this identity question. So the first thing I had to deal with was the racial issue. Are Jews a race? Uh, no, they're not. They're not. Uh, they they claim the the Zionist enterprise claims that these people go back to Moses. Uh, they have Moses' DNA in their in their cells. That's not true. Okay, the Ashkenazi are uh, basically a Turkic race. They're not Semitic. They don't go back that far. Okay, so you can't base this on race. Although they claim they would like to claim that they would. So how how what what is it then? So I you go back to the to the Bible, uh, uh, the Gospel of Saint John, and there's a huge dispute here 
uh, between the Jews and Jesus Christ. And the Jews claim that they're the seed of Abraham. You know, we have special DNA, and you better take us seriously. And Jesus kind of laughs at them. But this is the beginning of, of uh, Jewish racism. It's the beginning of uh, biological identity. And uh, he, he laughed at it, and so I'm not going to take it seriously. So what is, what is Jewish identity? What is identity? What is this identity? And I'm saying it's not biological, it's ideological, or it's ontological, or it's religious, depending on how you want to define it, and it's based on the rejection of Logos. Now, Logos at the time of Jesus Christ was a very specific thing because Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate. St. John said, in the beginning there was Logos, and Logos was with God, and Logos is God. Logos is the order of the universe, which is something the Greeks sort of knew, but it turns out that Logos is a person too, and the universe has a rational order because it it embodies the mind of God, or it is based, created by the mind of God. And so the Jews, when they rejected Jesus Christ, which they did, they had him crucified, they rejected Logos. When they rejected Logos, they rejected the order of the universe, and when they rejected the order of the universe, they became revolutionaries. And I'm saying that's what their identity is to this day. That's what Jewish identity is. It's the rejection of Logos. So it's not uh, practicing the Jewish religion, okay? Because that means Sigmund Freud isn't a Jew. Well, everybody knows knows he was a Jew. B'nai Brith spent uh, has one of his goals: the spreading of his uh, doctrine. So he's obviously a Jew. You don't have to practice the religion to be a Jew. It's obvious. It's obvious. There's some people who say that, but it's not true. Okay. So, well, what is it then? What is it then? It is it is participation in this revolutionary spirit. I think that's what characterizes Jewish behavior and Jewish identity up to this day, okay? From the crucifixion up to this day. That's a long period of time, but I think that book uh, that I wrote uh, proves it. The other way, uh, the other side of it is easier to disprove. So th that's the story of Oswald Rufeisen, who's a Jew in Poland. He's time of the Nazis. He's really a double agent. He seems to, says he's working with the SS, but he's really working with the resistance. Uh, he has to escape. He goes to a convent, Carmelite convent, uh, to hide out. And because of his stay there, he becomes a Catholic. And because of his even longer stay, he becomes a priest. So now he's a priest and a Catholic, and Israel gets created. And he says, oh, Israel, I have a right to return. So he goes to Israel, and he asks for citizenship, and they won't give it to him. Well, wait a minute. If it's he's got a Jewish mother, did his DNA change because he became because that water? You know, you pour the water of baptism on your forehead. Did that change your DNA? No, of course not. So this is the Jews admitting then that it's really not race. It's not what they say it is. It is rejection of logos because this Jew rejected the rejection. If you reject the rejection, you're no longer a Jew. And that is now codified in the Israeli Constitution. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, could you please state different examples for those revolutionary movements and their influences and how destructive they were? Yeah, well, okay, so 90% of the world's Jews live in Poland. 
uh, Poland gets partitioned at the end of the 18th century. So now 90% of the Jews now live, instead of on the eastern border of uh, the eastern part of Poland, they live on the western part of Russia. And they are not, they just cannot assimilate. This is called the Pale of the Settlement, uh, the, the Shtetl, all of these Jewish settlements. They don't speak Russian, they speak Yiddish, which is a German dialect, and so on and so forth. And during this period of time, two uh, competing ideologies arise, okay? The Enlightenment comes to this group of Jews, and some of them uh, are moved by the Enlightenment. Solomon Maimon is one, wrote a memoir about darkest Lithuania and the shtetl there. Uh, and uh, some of them stay the same, and then the, the, the Enlightenment breeds two different ideologies. One is Jewish internationalism, which is, comes to be known as communism. The other is Jewish nationalism, which has come to be known as Zionism. And over the course between the 18th century, course of the 19th century, these two ideologies battled it out. Now, the, the, the communism was the more potent at the beginning, uh, but then, uh, at a certain point, the uh, the pendulum swung in the other direction. 1967 was a crucial year in America because at this point, uh, the Jews in America abandoned uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, they were part of the Black Jewish Alliance. They didn't like the way the Schwarzes were behaving at this point. So they abandoned the civil rights movement, and they, they went over to Israel. That was the time of the Arab-Israeli war, so there was a reason to do that. So it it, it swings back and forth. But the point here is that they're both revolutionary ideologies, and the Jews are always looking for some type of revolutionary ideology. They don't, they don't feel good. They just don't feel comfortable unless they're destroying the society that uh, uh, brought them in, allowed them to stay there. So you have, uh, you know, what happened there? Homosexual rights, the rise of the homosexual movement. It was a Jew Jewish, Jewish movement. It was the Jews at the APA who basically uh, got uh, homosexuality move, removed as a disorder from the DSM. Gay marriage, another Jewish uh, revolutionary movement. Um, uh, basically, Amy Dean in Tikkun Magazine said, without Jews, there wouldn't be any gay marriage. If I say that, people call me an anti-Semite. But it's simply true. The Jews are never comfortable never comfortable wherever they are unless they're engaging in some agitating for change, some type of revolutionary change, because that's their identity. That's who they are. That's the identity, the rejection of Logos that they confirmed their identity at the time of Christ and is the same identity to this day. What is the solution for the Jewish people? Logos. Yeah. Logos is the solution for everyone. And... The, the more I talk, the more Jews start to come around to that understanding. Okay, you're, this, is, you're not, this is not a happy group of people. The more success they get, the more unhappy they become. Look at, uh, read the biography of Philip Roth, if you don't believe that. Uh, a guy who was, uh, uh, un, had all sorts of honors showered on him, just not happy because he's in rebellion against Logos. So all, what, my message to the Jews is, Reject the rejection of Logos, and you'll be happier. We'll all be happier. I'll be happier. Believe me, we're all suffering from one form or the other of these Jewish revolutionary movements. Look at what Bolshevism did in the 20th century. How many people had to die because of that? 
Look at the misery that the Palestinians are suffering now. The, the exact opposite of the political spectrum from Bolshevism, and yet you have the same type of anti-Logos behavior. Jews are waking up. Jews are waking up to this fact. Paul Eisen, good, good example of what I'm talking about, raised as a Jew in England, just woke up one day, started to realize what was happening to the Palestinians, and created the Deir Yassin uh, organization, started working for the Palestinians, and eventually uh, I bumped into him in London, you know, when, when the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit came out, I did a book signing there. And we're talking, we're walking through uh, the streets of London and we're talking. Which is, that's what Logos is. It's speech. And I'm talking to him as honestly as I can. And he's talking to me as honestly as he can. And then I realize a couple of years later, he converts to Catholicism. Now, this is, uh, this, is, this is Logos, okay? I think that's a happy ending. I know there are Jews out there who think that this is awful, but that's, you know, what is their solution? More revolution? More unhappiness? More Bolshevism? More Zionism? More gay marriage? No, that's not the solution anymore. I hear you. Uh, because you're mentioning the Logos, I want to take you back to uh, the Christ Christendom and the Catholic Church, and I would like for you to explain to us in what way was the West shaped by the Catholic Church? Well, uh, the uh, the Catholic Church came into being at the time of the Roman Empire, uh, which was the most powerful empire in the world at that point, and the Christians were a persecuted sect. They were hated by, hated by the Jews and hated by the Romans, persecuted by everyone. But they grew over this period of time because they had the Logos. You, if you have the Logos, you will never be defeated. And this is what the crucial moment in human history came when John wrote his gospel in Greek. And he said, in the beginning, there was Logos. And Logos is God. Now, if you have that understanding of the universe, you have power. And over the period of time, they kept refining this definition to include things like the Trinity and so on and so forth. And these were important distinctions that you had to come to, had to understand. It's distinctions about being. This is not faith. This is being here. Faith allowed you insights into being. And if you have insight into being, you can become powerful. And so one of the things that arose out of this understanding of being was science. In the Middle Ages, same time, after about a thousand years of just doing theology, they woke up and said, hey, we, there's a world out there. Maybe we should look into that. Albert the Great started doing this. The Muslims had Aristotle. They had all of the philosophical tools before when, when Europe was overrun by barbarians and my ancestors were looting and pillaging, uh, chasing pigs through the forest. And it didn't come to anything because they didn't have Logos, because they got their idea of God from the Nestorian heretics who didn't understand that Logos was God. And so the history left them behind. It shouldn't have happened, but it did because they didn't understand secondary causality, because they didn't understand that the Logos was incarnate, because there's no secondary causality. God does everything. And if God does everything, there's no reason to study science or matter or biology or any of those things. And I ran into this attitude when I was in Iran, where uh, a, a friend is always trying to organize debates with a mullah. And the mullah was, I was talking to him about the wheel 
And he said, no, a prophet created the wheel. What do you mean by that? Well, he learned that from the Hadith. Well, the Hadith, I don't believe the Hadith, but this is, this is a, 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 a religion which uh, there's no, God does everything. And if God does everything, you don't need to figure out science. And so the main, this is what the prog progress of Logos in the West allowed uh, the creation of science. Science create, allowed technology, and technology allowed these people to dominate the world. Not, not a particularly good thing, but God takes evil things and he turns them into good. So uh, the fact that uh, the, uh, the Europeans dominated the world allowed them to bring Christianity to the Mexicans, and that was a good thing in spite of all the bad things that happened around it. This is the way God works in human history. But it's all based on Logos. And if you reject Logos for one reason or another, uh, you, you will be, uh, history will pass you by. That's the story so, of the West. I understand. So scholastic philosophy is the uh, refinding of uh, Aristo principles in philosophy and merging that into Christianity. That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. That's right. So, so look, the, 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 the Catholic Church has always been open to what is good in uh, in uh, what you would call pagan religions, if you call. So that's why St. John wrote the gospel in Greek. He accepted, not a, he just didn't use a word, logos, uh, because it's part of the Greek language. He took a whole philosophical tradition, the tradition of philosophy, and basically merged it with the Hebrew scriptures. So the, the, the Greeks had philosophy, but they didn't understand history. And the Hebrews had history, but they didn't understand philosophy. So you combine these two things and you have philosophy and history, and that's called Christianity. And that's powerful. That's a powerful combination. And that's why Christianity uh, uh, spread as, as extensively and as quickly as it did. Okay. Um, can you tell us about the corruption and the infiltration of the Catholic Church, about the, um, the Second Vatican uh, Consul, Council? And uh, if you can talk a little about the Jesuit and how they uh, destroyed the Catholic Church, and if you can emphasize uh, what's happening today with Pope Francis, uh, it seems to me like he's uh, uh, promoting postmodernism and Marxism. And uh, I don't know if you agree, but uh, I would love to hear your opinion, please. Yes. Um, all right. The, the crucial moment, you're right. The crucial moment was the Second Vatican Council. And, I'm, and a lot of Catholics blame what the state of the church now on the Second Vatican Council, but I think that's naive. It's not. What happened at the Second Vatican Council was that uh, powerful forces got involved in that council. So I'm talking about two powerful forces, CIA uh, in the United States of America, uh, who used a Jesuit by the name of John Courtney Murray as their agent at the Second Vatican Council through the intermediary of uh, Time Magazine, Harry Luce Time Magazine, to basically uh, made an attempt to change the church's teaching on the relationship between church and state. That failed. Okay, but they still took over uh, the uh, interpretation of the council, and that led to problems to this day. The other attempt to subvert the Second Vatican Council was on the part of the Jews. The Jews, uh, two Jewish organizations, B'nai B'rith and the American Jewish Committee, uh, found their double agent, 
a man by the name of Malachy Martin, an Irish priest who was an assistant to Cardinal Bea, who had basically made contact with Jules Isaac uh, before the council, and uh, used they used Malachy Martin to subvert another part of the Catholic Church teaching, namely uh, the Jews' responsibility for the death of Christ. They wanted that removed. They wanted a statement to say basically the Jews did not kill Christ. They didn't like. I don't. Why? I mean, hey, what's what's the big deal, fellas? He was just a common criminal, wasn't he? Why are you so upset? Well, anyway, they were upset. They paid him, and that failed. So I'm saying there were attempts to subvert the council, and they failed because you couldn't get 2,000 bishops together and say uh, the Jews didn't kill Christ. Every you read the gospel, the gospel, the Acts of the Apostles, it's nothing but a conflict between Christians and Jews. And uh, on top of that, it was you have St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 who was a Jew, and he said the Jews are the people that killed Christ and they're enemies of the entire human race. So it didn't work. But that doesn't mean that the psychological warfare is going to stop. And so what happened after the council is that these two groups, namely the CIA and the Jews, took over the interpretation of the council and then made, they made it into what they wanted it to be. And the Jews did this largely through something called Catholic-Jewish dialogue, which was an unmitigated disaster for the Catholic Church. So what happened now is that you have uh, basically a consensus among Catholics uh, is if you criticize a Jew, you're committing a sin. Now that's a, 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 a reductio ad absurdum, but I think that's true. I think that Catholics now feel because of the Second Vatican Council, because of Jewish influence, because of this Catholic-Jewish dialogue, that they're not allowed to criticize Jews. Well, who said that? Is it a sin to criticize Jews? Did Jesus Christ criticize Jews? Yeah, he did. Did Moses criticize Jews? Was he an anti-Semite? Well, why can't you criticize Jews? Well, that is de facto the situation. Everything that uh, the ADL will call hate speech, anti-Semitism, is basically people, for the most part, criticizing Jewish behavior. Uh, that's the problem that we've reached right now. That is the problem with the, the Catholic Church right now. And Pope Francis is a manifestation of this problem. Now, Pope Francis, I met with him. Uh, I, I was in Argentina, met with a lot of people who knew him, including a priest who was apparently, Pope Francis is a Jesuit. Uh, another Jesuit told me he was the only uh, Jesuit in Argentina who would talk to Bergoglio because nobody liked him because of his attitude in general. And uh, he, so I said, well, what, what did he say? He told me, los judios, los judios son mierda. Jews are shit. Well, wait a minute. That's an awful thing to say. But that's apparently what, the way he was talking then. And then he got involved with a, uh, basically a, a, a Jewish operative by the name of uh, Skorkna, uh, Rabbi Skorkna, who uh, then got him some favorable Jewish press, and he's been uh, basically a, a docile uh, proponent of uh, Catholic-Jewish dialogue ever since, to the, the disruption of the church. This is completely disruptive in the church. It spreads division in the church, and it's not based on the gospel. And we've reached the point now where if, if, if you're uh, uh, someone who criticized Jews, you cannot become a saint. 
This is the, the new orthodoxy, which means that someone like St. John Chrysostom should not be a saint because he criticized Jews. St. Paul criticized Jews. Everybody back then criticized Jews because they didn't know it was a sin not to criticize Jews. So this is the situation we're in right now. The Jesuits are now in control of the Catholic Church. The Jesuits, as I said, were already complicit with the CIA through John Courtney Murray. They have become a vehicle for Americanism. They are basically the chaplains of the oligarchs, and it's having a disastrous effect on the Catholic Church right now. I have two more questions about Catholicism. I remember that I learned that uh, during the 14th century, uh, for, during uh, the time of 70 years, you had like two popes, even three popes at the same time. Uh, what caused that? And is it relevant to what happened since and what's happening today? It's the Great Schism, I think it's called. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, uh, internal politics, uh, the controversy. Uh, at that point, the institution of the papacy wasn't as strong as it is now. The papacy was controlled largely by people uh, who were cardinals. So uh, those people, it was historical circumstances, led to a situation where there are three popes. So this is a, uh, we now have a similar situation because uh, Ratzinger resigned. I think it was, I mean, why does God allow this to happen? I think it's so that you don't place your faith in the Pope, which was hard not to do uh, under John Paul II. He was such a powerful figure. He led the crusade against communism. Everybody, it was papolatry pretty much. And maybe that's why God allows this to happen. Uh, that's why it happened then. I think that's why it happened. Uh, God wants to make sure that your faith is on a sound basis and he will take away anything that interferes with that sound basis. Do you think that Catholicism can be saved? And uh, what kind of solution can they can can the Catholic Church offer to our predicament today? The Catholic Church is the only institution powerful enough to defend the moral order. And that's why it was targeted by the Jews and by the WASP ruling class. Notre Dame played a crucial role in that subversion because John D. Rockefeller wanted to undermine the church's teaching on contraception. And so he paid Notre Dame money, and so he spread disunity in the Catholic Church. What, what happens when the church is weak? When the church is weak, the oligarchs are strong. When the church is weak, you get ruled by the rich and the powerful. It's that simple. No other institution is powerful enough to defend the weak in this world. And if you weaken that institution, the poor are going to suffer. It's that simple. That's the world we live in right now. Who do, you, who do you define as the enemy? What is the end goal? And where do you see the world in the next few years? What's your prediction? The enemy is, is the enemy of uh, the people, the anti-Logos, the people who hate Logos. The Jews always have a, a special role to play in this because of their rejection of Logos and the role that they played in killing the Logos incarnate. Uh, I see consciousness rising, though. Uh, because that's why God allows evil. And so I see uh, the more Israel persists in its rejection of Logos, the weaker it becomes, no matter how many weapons it has. And so that weakness will lead to a crisis. And the crisis is going to be, you're going, they're going to have to phase up to it, or they will go out of existence. It's that simple. Uh, that's the same thing. The, the, we are seeing the same thing with the American empire. 
it chose uh, evil. It chose power over righteousness. And so that's going out of existence too. So there, there's turmoil because there's always turmoil when big changes like this take place. Okay, we are going to change the topic for a second. I know about your great love for art and music. I understand that you're writing a book about aesthetics. Please tell us about it and uh, kindly begin with explaining to us what art is, what is the purpose of art, the way you understand it. Uh, the purpose of art is beauty. And beauty is something that's very important. It's important because it gives us access to being, as being. And being as being is also God. So you can have access to the divine through beauty in a way that you probably can't through reason or through the will because they're the, the other transcendentals. The, the aspects of being which are divine, it's the good, the true, and the beautiful. So there are times in human history where you, people couldn't understand uh, ultimate reality, but they could experience it through beauty. And so the last book I wrote is Logos Rising, which is about metaphysics and basically understanding reality. But this, that led naturally into this book on aesthetics, which is about how do you perceive ultimate reality? And you perceive ultimate reality when you perceive beauty. That's why beauty is important. Now, as I said, beauty, the good, the true, and the beautiful are known as transcendentals. They are interchangeable. And someone who understood this was Plato when he wrote about music because he said, if you play certain modes, you will corrupt the morals of the people. He understood that there was an intimate connection between what is beautiful, namely art or music, and what is good, namely uh, morality. There was an intimate connection. He understood it, even though he didn't have terms like transcendental to uh, explain it. That only came later with Aquinas in the Middle Ages. It took a lot of uh, thinking on the part of a lot of people before they could isolate those terms. So this is a way of dealing with the problems that we deal with right now. You can uh, solve problems by making something beautiful. You can have an effect on the world, a salutary effect, every bit as much as moral reform, because if you create something that's beautiful, it will give uh, people an entry into Logos, and once you, ha uh, uh, once you enter into Logos, you're in the presence of God. And that's oftentimes the feeling that you get with great works of art. I have my personal experience. I was living as an apostate Catholic, and I suddenly I was listen, listened to the Messiah. The Messiah drove me out mm -hmm. of my apartment and all the way to church. I didn't go in because I wasn't ready yet, but it had that power. And that was purely because of beauty. And that's what this book is about. Let me interject. The first time that I went to a church was after I heard the Matthäus Passion by Bach. That's the first time, and since then, my entire house is filled with that kind of music. This is how I understand the, the sacred, the sacred, and this is how right. I connect with the beauty and divine. So, and yes, the absolutely. Messiah by Handel, yeah, unbelievable. Yes, it's absolutely. Now, the opposite happens too. So, let's take rap music. 
do you think it's a coincidence that rap musicians shoot each other? No, it's not a coincidence. This is this is ugliness in music. I hope I don't offend everybody out there, but it's ugly. And because it's ugly, it naturally leads to immoral behavior. And so these guys shoot each other on a regular basis, oftentimes when they're filming their, their uh, music videos. That is the flip side of the, what we just said about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So uh, the same thing happened with classical, uh, like a contemporary classical music. It's the complete opposite of uh, the music from the 18th and the 17th century. What we have right. now in music is, is violent. It's uh, atonal music. It's formless. Right. And it's cacophonia. So, uh, yeah, and I think it's happening in every other field of art. So you think modernism, it's responsible for, for is that like an expression of the decaying and degradation of our civilization? Yes, absolutely. Your, your slides guy said that uh, modernity is Jewish and he's right. And the best manifestation of that is music. So you have uh, Bach, a great composer, a saint. He must have been a saint, even though he was a Lutheran. But uh, he uh, creates this, uh, uh, unifies the chromatic and the diatonic scale, allows great works of mimesis, like Beethoven's symphonies, like the Sixth Symphony, which is a classic work of mimesis. Uh, and that leads to Wagner, who then undoes the whole thing and disconnects tonality and chromaticism. We have Tristan or Isolde, which is uh, a, basically an opera dedicated to lust. And one of the guys who's influenced by this is a guy named Arnold Schoenberg, who's a bohemian. He's a Jew, uh, born a Jew, but he became a Christian. He's living in Vienna. And so he writes for Claire Tenacht, which is a smeary version of Tristan or Isolde. He's living the bohemian life. His life uh, commits adultery and he's full of rage and he abandons the Christian faith and he declares war on music, war on Western music because of what Christianity, what he called Christianity did to him. And so the result is first atonality and then the 12 tone, 12 tone, 12 tone music, which is uh, aggression. It's psychological warfare. And I said this to my friend, my friend, uh, I was in a band in Germany uh, my friend Heiner was the only guy in the band who had talent. He went on to study music at the Robert composition at the Robert Schumann Institute in Dusseldorf. And I said, Heiner, this 12 tone is not music. It's psychological warfare. Well, he laughed at me, but then it turns out the CIA was involved in this every bit as much as they were involved in uh, abstract expressionism. So that's, that's music. Okay. The Jews yeah. come in. They take over, and suddenly music becomes anti-Logos. And that's what 12-tone is. I don't think anybody can deny that. Yeah. Would you like to honor us with one minute or two minutes of some Wagnerian uh, singing? Something which is relevant <laughs> to... <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Uh, ba 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 ba. That's the uh, Tannhäuser. Great melody. See, that's diatonic. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then when uh, there's so there's a conflict here between Tannhäuser, who wants to be a Christian, but he also likes having sex, 
And so he's tempted to go to the Venusberg and he goes to the Venusberg and suddenly that's chromatic. That is the conflict I'm talking about here. That was the conflict in Wagner's life. And when he got to uh, Tristan and Isolde, he capitulated. He went over to the dark side and music suffered as a result. Incredible. You have so much knowledge. Thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, little A has a few questions. And then if you allow us, we will open the, the, the floor for a few questions from the audience. Okay. Is that okay. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. So my question is more, um, it's more a theological one. It's a bit um, different than the other ones. Um, I would like to know um, within Christianity, um, so on the one hand, uh, Christianity refers to the remnant of Israel as being um, chosen by grace, um, which cannot be based on works. Um, um, which, if I understand it correctly, um, it's it's a calling or a destiny. Um, it's being preordained. Whilst on the other hand, there is a command where um, you're given life and death and you need to choose life. So it seems that within Christianity, you 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 on the one hand, you have providence, and on the other hand, you have a freedom of choice. Um, I'm not sure if these contradict, but I would like to know how how do you reconcile these two, um, and can they be reconciled? Can you have freedom yes. of choice as well as providence, as as a destiny chosen yes. by God? Yes, yes. So I'll tell you, incident in my life. I'm taking a walk. It's a rainy day in May, and I get to the bridge over the St. Joseph River, and a black woman comes up to me and says, "Do you have a cell phone?" And I said, "No, I'm sorry, I don't." And she said, "Well, I need to call my mama because I'm going to kill myself." And then she hopped over the railing and stood on the ledge and was ready to jump into the flood-swollen St. Joseph River, where she probably would have drowned and died. Now, this, if I had left fifth, five minutes earlier or five minutes later, I never would have run into this woman. This means that God's plan from all eternity was that the two of us were going to meet on that bridge. That was God's plan. There's no way to get around it. But when we got there, it the outcome of this meeting depended on our free will. So at this point, I could have I could have just kept on walking, say sorry, honey, I got things to do, and kept on walking. Or she could have hopped over the railing and jumped in the river. But that didn't happen. What happened is that I went to I started to talk to her, and I said, God has a plan for your life. And it's not to jump in the river. And then she said, well, nobody loves me. I'm going to kill myself. I said, well, th we need to talk about this. And we talked and we talked. And finally, the cops showed up and the cops trying to persuade her. And at that point, I said a prayer. And at that point, she turned around and climbed over the railing. Now, that's an instance of how free will and God's plan are perfectly consistent. One does not contradict the other. Your freedom does not contradict God's will. And God's will does not contradict your freedom. It's that simple, and that's the illustration that uh, I would give you. Now, the reason we think this is a problem is very simple. There's one man who created the problem, and that was man's name was Martin Luther, uh, who came up with an exaggerated notion of grace, that simply obliterated any idea of free will. So grace was just so powerful, it would overcome your free will. That's wrong. 
God will never overcome your free will. And so, uh, well, why did he do this? Well, because uh, he was a sinner. He basically uh, could not control his passions. And rather than simply say, I can't control my passions, I get drunk all the time, I'm having sex with nuns, uh, he said, God did it. And so he wrote a, tr uh, a treatise called uh, On the Enslaved Will, where he tried to uh, give you the illusion that uh, only grace can save you and your free will has nothing to do with it. It's not true. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. I would also add that um, I do I do think also the fact that God is outside of time does have a, a factor. So he knows the beginning from the end and he would know what you would choose before you chose right. it. Absolutely. Uh, He's in eternity. And all of what we see as a movie uh, going on as we're speaking is really a tapestry in God's mind. It's all over. It's all one eternal pattern. And he knew everything that was going to happen. And that he knew that in the end, good was going to triumph. And that's why he created this whole thing in the first place. Thank you. Yeah. And okay, Dr. So Jones, oh, one second. Um, what would you say about uh, the current uh, insanity with the corona and uh, the, the pressure to vaccinate? I don't call it vaccinated. It's more like a little weapon. But what, what is your take on that? And if I make, may ask a personal question, you don't have to answer that. Would you ever consider taking the job? Uh, the answer is no, I will not do it. I, I got COVID uh, in in uh, November of last year. Uh, it was not a big deal. Uh, I've had worse hangovers in my life than this disease. So the disease, uh, and I'm in a high-risk category because I'm over, over 70 and so on and so forth. So no, it's not. Uh, I'm not going to take the vaccine because this is not medicine. The vaccine is not, first of all, it's not a vaccine. It's a manipulator of your uh, DNA. And secondly, uh, uh, what we're dealing about is a, a pandemic that is really biological warfare being waged against the entire human race at this point. So the right before the COVID uh, was exaggerated, the danger of COVID was exaggerated, and now the danger of the vaccines is being played down. So uh, we, we need to have some type of awakening. The people have to stand up and say, no, we're not going to be subjected to this biological warfare anymore. Usually that takes place on a local level where the people confront the, uh, the local health department uh, who are all agents of the World Health Organization and say, no, you're not going to shut us down anymore. We're going to go on. And the, the, what we need here is a strong... Uh, uh, political representation, a political system that will represent the will of the people against the will of the medical oligarchs. Thank you very much. Um, um, yes, so we are going to open now for questions. Um, I, I just want to um, thank Dr. Jones for, for giving his time, giving his input. And I'm reminding everyone, if you want to visit his personal website, it is culturewars.com. Um, if one of the admins could please just post um, the URL again, along with his Telegram group, which is at emichaeljones. Um, thank you, Dr. Jones. It was such a lovely, um, um, insightful talk, and we really appreciate your time.
we're just going to uh, open the open the floor now for questions. Anyone has a question? Please go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the relationship between logos and the natural order. What do they have in common? Logos, uh, one manifestation of the logos is the order of, uh, of nature. Uh, there, the the mind can apprehend the laws of nature because the mind uh, can uh, is rational, and logos is God. God is rationality, the ultimate rationality. So God created the world, and in that creation, He put logos or seeds, seeds of reason, uh, rats, uh, uh, what do they call logoi spermaticoi, into nature, and that became the basis of science. So science, nature, is a manifestation of the logos, which is ultimately resides in the mind of God. Thank you. Anyone else have a question? Please speak now. Yes, um, I do. Um, my yeah. name is Patrick. Uh, thank you for hosting this. And this is my first time talking with you, Professor Jones. I really appreciate your work. It's changed my life. And um, I want to speak with you about Father Feeney. You had mentioned his quote, having a Jew or having a television in the living room is like having a Jew, or wait, having a television in your home is like having a Jew in your living room. So based on that, I, I researched this guy. I think this guy is a saint, this man, um, from what I've been reading about him and kind of his, how he's been uh, ostracized by both uh, liberals and traditionalists on both sides because of his attitude toward Jews. And you had mentioned the Jesuits and Vatican II, and he was the editor of America Magazine in the 1930s, and he got involved with his bishop, Archbishop Cushing, Richard Cushing, regarding um, extra ecclesiam nulla solus. And anyway, I'm reading one of his articles right now about, he typed in from 1956, called Two White Jews. And in it, he talks about Bernard Baruch, and he talks about this Father John Osterreicher. And I'm wondering if, if you've heard of Father John Osterreicher. He was part of the Institute of Judeo-Christian Studies, and he, Feeney regards him as a Murano. But he, was, he, he had been baptized Catholic in Austria and made a priest three years later. And then he also went on to Vatican II to be one of the architects of Nostra Aetate and uh, the teachings on the Jews. Have you heard of this priest? I, I have, yeah. Yeah, I have. It's, it's, it's not something that I've written about. I've not, I've not done that type of research, but yeah, I heard, I heard about this. Uh, I, I've all, I mentioned Cushing uh, in my book, uh, uh, The Slaughter of Cities. Uh, and his relationship with a, a group, uh, the the ruling class elite, was called the Vault uh, in in Boston. Cushing was an Americanist. Um, he thought that America could teach the Catholic Church. Uh, he also got into serious debt. And you put these two things together, and he was in a very vulnerable position. And I think that's why he 
uh, felt that he had to act w on Father Feeney the way he did. Uh, that probably could have been resolved, but you know we'll never know now because the history, they're dead and history has already passed them by. Okay, have you, can can you give me some opinion? Have you gone in, into researching Father Feeney's works at all? Like no, I. Okay. If you're asking me if I believe that there's no salvation outside the church, I I do believe that. Yes, I do believe that. That's the the there. Okay. there you, you can take it back a step and say, would there be uh, salvation without Jesus Christ? Well, no, no one would be saved without Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ found the church? Well, yes, he did. Uh, can we can we uh, can you be saved if you do not? if you refuse to join that church. No, you cannot. So the, the, the good example of this was when uh, Bishop Barron recently uh, was interviewed by Ben Shapiro. And Ben Shapiro, kind of like the, kind of with this air of Jewish privilege, said, am I going to hell? That's the way he put it. And Barron kind of did a dance and you know couldn't really come up with the answer. You can get to the heart of the matter by saying very simply, Ben, are you baptized? Well, uh, no. Well, uh, baptism is necessary for salvation, Ben. So uh, we can make, uh, uh, let's say, we can take into account the fact of, okay, if you're a, a Yanomamo living in the Amazon rainforest in 500 B.C., you cannot know uh, who Jesus Christ was because nobody knew who Jesus Christ was at that point. Okay. Can you be, can that person be saved? Well, that's up to God, but he can only be saved because Jesus Christ did what he did. Okay. So you can come back to Ben and say, look, Ben, uh, I don't know your circumstances, but if, if you refuse to be baptized, you cannot be saved. I mean, if you don't know who Jesus Christ was and you don't know that there is such a thing as baptism, we'll leave that up to God. And he, he'll probably judge you on the way you led your life and whether you led a moral life or not to the best of your ability. But if you refuse uh, to be baptized, you cannot be saved. It's that simple. Um, one more thing. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Go on. Uh, I would just like to say that, uh, Dr. Jones, you really should read his Point magazine from 52 to 59. A lot of his work is basically parallel to what you've been doing and the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit book. He's got so much information uh, that is just really right on, right on with what you're doing. And well, thank I you. He was I'll, I'll keep that in mind. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hussein Katatul, you had a question. Yes. Um, so, Dr. Jones, um, Eric Verglin said that the order of history is the history of, of order. And then I realized reading Logos Rising that um, if I replace order by Logos, I get the same result. And I started wondering um, how does my personal biography um, apply to first the, the Logos of history and then to the, the history of Logos? How can I make up um, my presence in such an order um, that I can make that um, um, statement work for myself? Well, you have to understand what the. You're right. I did take that. I did take that from Vogelin. I did, and I changed one word. But I I had read Vogelin's book, and I, I remember that. It struck me. 
So uh, you can become part of uh, the Logos of, of history. You can, first of all, you have to understand the history of Logos. In other words, where did this word come from? How did it develop? Uh, how does that have impact on my life? And then once you have an understanding of that, then you join the, uh, you join the forces of Logos. That, that's what you do. And then your life will suddenly, you will be able to integrate your life into that broad span of history in a way that you could not have done before. First of all, because you will understand yourself better and you understand history better and you understand where history is going and what needs to be done at this particular point. Perfect. Thank you very much. Any more questions, please ask. Yes. Hi. Can I jump in? Can you hear me? Okay, thanks. Hi, so I just, I think it's really interesting. You see these concentric circles overlap of the left and right. You know, you have like Keir Starmer, labor lefty in the UK, Ron DeSantis, Republican, right winger in Florida, and they're both signing similar anti-hate speech legislation, right? That kind of protects, it kind of conflates Judaism with Zionism and protects Israel. So it's like, you really see, I mean, I don't know what it means, but it's, there's something there, you know, I'm guessing. Um, and well, this is the problem. Yeah. This is the problem of American politics. Yeah. So you, uh, it, this happened. I said this before, but it happened when the, the attack on Gab took place. Gab is supposed to be an alternative to Twitter. You know, free speech and so on and so forth. First of all, the Gab Andrew gets attacked by uh, Mother Jones, which is a left wing magazine. The next day, he gets attacked by the conservative governor of of Texas. Well, right. what do those two groups have in common? Well, they're both uh, Jewish proxy warriors. That's what they have in common. Ron DeSantis is a courageous guy who uh, passed a law making it illegal to uh, deplatform people in Florida, but he also signed a bill uh, sent making it illegal to criticize Israel in state institutions. The yeah. big problem, there was a time in America when there was something called the anti-Masonic party because Freemasonry had become such a big issue at that point. Well, we need an anti-Zionist party right now or an anti-Jewish party to because that is the fundamental issue. The Jewish control over our political system has become intolerable and ubiquitous, and, and nobody seems to want to address it. Well, and also something you touched on about the, the CIA infiltration of the church. You know, I, I was looking up Donald Barr, William Barr's dad, the guy who hired Jeffrey Epstein and then retired and then wrote that sci-fi novel about child sex trafficking in space. Anyway, that guy, Donald Barr, he was OSS, and he did convert to Catholicism from, you know, I, I guess he was Jewish. So it's just interesting, you know, there's an example right there. Um, yes, well, it, that's... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. The, the, the greatest saints in the history of the Catholic Church were Jewish. Right. St. Paul is one of the greatest saints in the history of the Catholic Church, and he was a Jew who then was persecuted by Jews. So this, there is something cosmic about uh, Jewish identity in this regard, and the benefits that could come to the human race if Jews abandoned their rejection of Logos are enormous. And the only thing we could think of by comparison is what happened when St. Paul converted. The enormous effect that he had on the entire world uh, uh, because he had converted from rejection of Logos and persecution of Logos to uh, being a servant of Logos.
I just have one. This is the last thing. This is my question. So, so touch on the social engineering of what you were talking about. I think it's all like an oh shit moment when we realize the original CEO of Netflix was ne uh, Bernays's nephew, who's Freud's nephew. So you just see this whole matrix, you know, foundation kind of thing, and then. And then you really feel like that they are they have totally learned how to weaponize our binary nature, you know, with like the Milgram study, Stanford prison experiments. And I mean, I, I think the whole Trump thing, it was just brilliant because because Trump was president, it it caused all these it broke people's brains, the liberals. And so now you had all these these liberals trusting big pharma and now they're running out and getting <laughs> vaccinated, you know, and, and it's like they're digging their heels in and fighting you. You know, it's calling you a Trump supporter, and it's just—I don't know—you just really feel how they weaponize our binary nature. So, like, is what do you suggest? How do you, how do we combat that? Like, what do we do? Logos, logos <laughs> yeah. uh, enables us to know the truth. We can know the truth, okay? And uh, once we know the truth, we can conform our lives to it. And if we conform our lives to the truth or to logos, we will have successful lives whether we end up poor, you know, or whether we end up having our head chopped off by a Roman soldier, we will have successful lives. And that's a significant uh, uh, fact uh, and something to keep in mind uh, because the alternatives are becoming more and more repugnant. The type of nihilism that has been imposed on the generation of 20-year-olds is awful. I appreciate it. Thanks. Dr. Well, Jones, uh, one question, please. Uh, what are your thoughts about the black and Muslim immigration to Europe? Uh, would you consider like a reverse colon colonialism? This is weaponized migration. Uh, and and we had the same, the same thing happened in the United States of America during the 50s and 60s, when they basically, uh, the, the government through people like Louis Wirth, the sociologist, at the University of Chicago, orchestrated mass migration from the, the South, the cotton plantations on the South, into the big cities like Chicago to basically destroy ethnic neighborhoods. This is nothing new. This is what's happening to Europe right now. The wet migration is being weaponized. You have um, Barbara Lerner Specter, Jewish lady, lots of Jewish people who are uh, involved in the orchestration of this migration to destroy uh, local culture destroy ethnic the European ethnic identity. That's what's happening right now. Is it is it just a Jewish phenomena? No, nothing is ever just a Jewish phenomenon. There's never been a Jewish political movement that didn't have non-Jews involved in it. So there's always going to be some some other participation, but it, it, they always seem to have a leadership role, uh, whatever the movement is. So that that's always going to be the case okay but there are plenty of jews who are saying that they are uh, heavily involved in the whole migration movement and Bar barbara lander specter is one of, i had a whole list of them but uh, the, her, that's the only name that uh, occurs to me at the moment thank you anyone else wants to ask a question can, can i ask one more um okay i yeah i um I have in front of me another article by Father Feeney from August 1955, and he, the, the title of the chapter is In Front of the Needle, and it basically is showing that um, back in the 50s, Jonas Salk, um, who was also Jewish, is basically the Dr. Fauci who came out with the polio vaccine, 
and they had had the big polio vaccination campaign at that time and it was announced that uh, they only had about six cases of polio in Boston for for all of that year and then then by um, August after a month of vaccinations they it had risen to 160 um, cases of polio based on that and he, he makes the claim basically that of, of pointing to Saint Alphonsus Maria de Liguori in his theological Morales that uh, he Saint Alphonsus states that Catholics are obliged to avoid all Jewish doctors and their remedies adding that to give oneself over to their care is to commit, quote, a mortal sin, unquote. Um, this is very interesting that this whole thing repeats itself, with the, especially regarding the United Nations and the World Health Organization. Feeney also points out to the Jewish control of the United Nations, which is in close proximity to, you know, a lot of Jewry in America, right in Manhattan, near Brooklyn, and all of that. So it's just very interesting that this whole COVID thing happens in a similar kind of scenario. You know, they had just gotten done with the Korean War. We're getting done with the Afghanistan War. People, troops are coming back. You know, there's, it seems like a whole ploy to control people in, in, a, in a sense, in the, keep their minds I, occupied. I, media. I think, I think, it, I think there's a, a trajectory of biological warfare. Uh, and I think that one uh, part of that trajectory was AIDS. And I, rem I, I went to uh, Africa. I went to Kenya. I gave a talk on African AIDS, and I said it was basically a pop failed population control campaign. Uh, I, I mean, it was a reaction to a failed population control campaign. So I think that this, uh, what COVID can be seen in, in as part of that trajectory, as a way as a way of understanding it. In terms of vaccinations, um, they're always dangerous. Uh, because if you don't get the right dosage, you'll kill the person by the very thing that you want to prevent him from uh, dying from. And that's Jonathan Edwards died of a uh, smallpox uh, uh, vaccination uh, back then when there, it was uh, there was no question about genetic modification or anything like that. So it's dangerous. Uh, you're right. It's dangerous. And in terms of Father Feeney, you're, you're, you're getting me more and more interested in Father Feeney. I have never, I have not done research into his writings, but it seems to me something I should look into. Dr. Jones, I, I have a question. Uh, I'm not trying to corner you. I just really want to know your opinion. Uh, many times I hear in the channels here, like uh, white uh, nationalists and people who really dislike Judaism, they bring up the topic of the protocols of the elders of Zion. They believe that uh, Jews are responsible for kidnapping children. Uh, turning their blood into, I don't know, ingredients in the matzah and all the rest of it. Is that something that you researched? Uh, do you have an opinion about it? Yeah, it's in the Jew Jewish revolutionary spirit. Uh, Saint uh, John Capistran, uh, Franciscan preacher in the 15th century, uh, was on a tour of uh, Bo Bohemia, I believe, uh, preaching against the Hussites. Uh, preaching and uh, he there was a, a a trial suddenly shows up in a town this is all in the jewish revolutionary spirit if you look it up in the index uh and because he's in town when the trial took place they asked him to be part of either the judge or part of the jury or something like that and there was a trial about uh, a blood libel which was basically that uh 
the Jews had captured this child and, and uh, murdered it uh, for its blood and they, for ritual purposes. And uh, they put her on trial, put him on trial, uh, the Jews on trial. And it turns out that uh, uh, the, uh, I think the daughter of one of the rabbis uh, took the stand and he said, yeah, it was true. They did do this. And then she took him to the cellar and they dug up and there was the bones uh, of the child. So the, the, they, they were convicted. So that's a, uh, that's an indication that this this was real. They didn't make this up. They uh, this it, it, it maybe it got uh, it turned into hysteria like the uh, witchcraft issue uh, in America and Europe. But this was a real trial. The man who uh, conducted it was uh, afterwards named a saint, and so I, I believe that it actually happened. What about the Shabbat Tzvi? and uh, uh, Jacob Frank and uh, this movement. Um, what can you tell us about that? Because I, I recognize that to be a vile, violent uh, uh, infiltration of uh, Judaism. It's like even worse than anything else well, I can describe. So, so the, uh, when the king of Spain kicked the Jews out, uh, a lot of them went to Holland and, and other group went to to Turkey, what is now Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. And uh, Shabbatai Zibi's family was part of that. And they became uh, what they were known as uh, Donme, which is the Turkish word for converso. And at a certain point, this was a guy who uh, would have been a rock star in the 20th century because he apparently liked to sing, had a good singing voice. And the women just loved it when he sang. And so he became extremely popular. And at a certain point, he became convinced that he was the Messiah. Uh, not only did he become convinced, he convinced every single synagogue in Europe that he was the Messiah. Uh, so we're talking about the middle of the 17th century. Uh, the Jews are selling their property. They're going to uh, Turkey, to Smyrna. And at this point, uh, Shabbat Zivi heads toward Istanbul and he's going to take the turban from the caliph's head uh, and declare himself the Messiah. But the caliph captures him and uh, says to him, basically, if you're the Messiah, then you won't mind if I have my archer shoot at you. And at this point, the Jewish Messiah became a Muslim. <laughs> yeah. Now, that, that was a catastrophe for uh, Jewry in Europe. It was an absolute catastrophe. And one of the results was the, uh, the Hasidim who just basically withdrew from society. We're just leave us alone. We're not going to deal with that anymore. Uh, but the problem was that uh, the Jews allowed false conversion. That was a big problem in Spain. And so uh, you never knew whether Shabbat So Shabbat would then go to his followers and said, well, I just told him that just because uh, I wanted him to believe that. But I'm really still a Jew. But then the secret police would be there at the meeting where he said that, and then they bring him toward the caliph, and he said, no, I just told the Jews that because I'm really your agent. I just wanted to calm them down. See, you never knew where this guy stood. You know, he had a lot of followers. And then, uh, I, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not clear at all about uh, Jacob Frank's relationship with Shabbat Zivi. And I'm, it's not clear to me whether Jacob Frank was sincere or not. I need to do more research on this, but they, they claim that he had a, a sex cult and that may be simply because uh, the Jews didn't like it when he converted to, to Christianity. So I, I have to, I have to pass on that part of it. Nappy Nipper, can you please, sorry, Nappy Nipper, if you have a question, please ask it now. Yeah. 
Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Jones, thanks for being here today. Um, speaking on art and beauty, I'm a fan of the theater. And I was just wondering if you have any opinions about whether the theater is worth saving. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the, the theater... I, let's let's put this: There's a lot of Christian polemic against the theater, and the theater uh, was tainted because if you go back to antiquity, uh, it was often it often involved uh, basically uh, what should I say pornography, uh, you know, performing of sex acts, uh, immoral stuff on the stage. But the theater, I think, and it's it's an art form. It's an art form, and all art forms can be perverted. And I think that art forms uh, can be used for the good. And I think that Aristotle was right. I mean, he went to the theater and he was uh, always had a kind of medical point of view about it. But he said, if, if you watch some man like Oedipus, you know, the fall of Oedipus, it creates uh, feelings of pity and fear. And that's good. That's good because it, it gives you a sense of catharsis. Catharsis is the word he uses. It's like a purging of emotions. So you can you can be come away uh, if it's a good theater performance, if it's something worthwhile, you can come away uh, feeling psychologically better off than before you went. It, it, it's also applies to music. Same thing applies to music. If you uh, or go through something like a Beethoven symphony, you feel catharsis at the end you feel you've been through something and uh, uh, this is the whole this is a profound this is what i'm trying to deal with in my book on aesthetics is the the psychological uh correlation to this uh is related to the to the dialectic what the german idealist called the dialectic uh which is related to the rosary which is related to experience it's related to christianity you know the rosary is happy uh, the joyful mysteries followed by the sorrowful mysteries followed by the glorious mysteries so this is like life life is start off with innocence the innocence of childhood and then the experience of adolescence and the alienation from childhood and then you reach a higher level well that's what happens in art as well it happens in beethoven symphonies the sixth symphony you start off uh, walking uh, a nice summer day you're taking a walk the peasants are having their festival they're dancing and then suddenly the thunderstorm rolls in and suddenly there's all this tension and, and anxiety and then the storm blows away and the sun comes out and now you feel better you feel you actually feel better you feel after listening to that music you feel you've been through something and you survived and that's the cathartic feeling that is essential great art gives you that feeling and that's why it's important Dr. Jones, we can see that there's quite a few more questions um, and we're just aware that you, uh, your time has been only for an hour. Would it be okay if we still ask, take some questions more? All right, couple more questions. Couple yeah, more questions. Can, I, can I just ask something, please? Go on. Yeah, sure. Um, I was raised in Ireland um, by Catholics. I went to an all-boys Catholic school run by the Christian Brothers who weren't particularly Christian, shall we say. Um, so, I mean, I, I have a, a, a pretty solid background in Catholicism and the, uh, uh, the tenets of the faith. Um, what I noticed when I was living there was one of the fundamental principles of uh, what was happening in Ireland 
um, around Catholicism was their protection, which is how it was seen publicly, of uh, child molesters within the church, um, was driving people towards leaving the faith and moving towards uh, a state-based faith, really. They put all faith back into the, or not back into, but into the state. Um, how do you retrieve them from that? If, if Catholicism is the reason they walked, or at least they believe Catholicism was the reason they walked, how are you getting them back? Well, first of all, you have to say it's not Catholicism, it's the sin of the uh, priest or the, or the brother. I was taught by the Christian brothers, too, uh, in Philadelphia. And I was there two years after I left, the wheels came off the Christian brothers and the whole thing went down the drain, largely because mm -hmm. of sexual scandal, not the type of sexual scandal that, that you're talking about, but sexual scandal in some sort or other. So what is the issue here? The issue is sexual scandal. The issue is sexual sin. And so what you had at this point was uh, the culture in large, and I have to say it's the Jewish controlled culture promoting sexual liberation. Well, everybody was subjected to this, including the priests, okay? And so there are people like uh, the father in Boston who was celebrated by the Boston Globe as a great innovator in youth ministry. Well, it turns out he was a pedophile. Well, the Boston Globe promoted him as this great priest in the 70s, and then they came down like a ton of bricks on the Catholic Church in the 90s for the same scandal they created. So yeah, let's, I mean, yeah, you have to have some type of clarity about what yeah. happened. It's not well, Jesus Christ who molested you. It was some nah. guy who couldn't control his passions. It wasn't me. Anyway, that's not the point. The point um, I was trying to make is uh, that quite often what was happening, particularly in Ireland, was homosexual men were finding themselves in the church um, because right. there was nowhere else for them. And right. this is the Achilles heel of a celibate priesthood. So mm. what happened, what happened in the sixties in America, let's say Notre Dame, they had these summer courses for priests and nuns. Well, they all, they, given the zeitgeist, they all fell in love with each other and they're walking around holding hands. And then, you know, you sister, uh, uh, you know, you get into the habit and then suddenly, well, let's run off. We can't get married. We can't stay this way. So they, so all the heterosexuals left. Well, that just concentrated the number of homosexual people with homosexual orientation when in the church. And they've got the same permission slip that everyone else does. And so they start acting out in ways that uh, are, first of all, not being punished now. Because, uh, uh, but if it's uh, underage, then uh, they this got used as a weapon. So let's uh, let's let's be very concrete about this, okay? There was an investigation in Philadelphia of the Catholic clergy, okay? Lynn Abrams did the investigation. Now Lynn Abrams is a Jewish lady who happens to be on the board of the ADL, which leads me to believe that she had an axe to grind in this yep. story. Anyway, it turns out that uh, there is one indictment. She invi she investigated three hundred priests, and there's one indictment. But she publishes the names and pictures of every priest that she investigated. Well, why are you doing that if not to defame the Catholic Church? And then yeah. the same thing happens in Harrisburg. Another Jew 
in Harrisburg. Again, I think there's an animus here, but the same thing happens. Hundreds of priests get exposed. No, no, wait a minute. I got reversed. No indictments in Philadelphia. One indictment in Harrisburg. Now, this is a campaign against the Catholic Church. I'm sorry. And I'm not trying to make excuses for uh, sexual misbehavior. That's not the issue here. There's sexual misbehavior all over. The we don't even call it sexual misbehavior anymore. So there's plenty of that out there, but it's being weaponized because these people don't like the Catholic Church. Would you say the same principle applies in Ireland, then? More so. A uh. fortiori. James, James Joyce said the Irish were a priest-ridden people. Yeah. Okay, that means the priest had a very high position in Irish society. And yeah, so they did if you That's right. And so if you discredit the priest, you discredit the entire church. Now the Catholics in Ireland are going to have to wake up to the fact they're going to have to grow up and say, "Well, that may be bad, but it's not as bad as Google. It's not as bad as COVID. All of this type of stuff as soon as you abandon the Catholic Church, you abandon the only thing that's protecting you from the oligarchs. That's what the, the chief of yeah. Catholica said about the Jews in France after the French Revolution. That is exactly what happened in Ireland. So what would you suggest that we do to be able to bring people back to that? I mean, I've been trying for decades now. Get on your knees and pray for forgiveness for your sins because you're being, you've got worse. You, this is the worst tyranny. This is worse than the English. This is worse than the penal laws because you've got Irish women bragging about their abortions. I know. That's horrific. Yeah, I know. Okay, I, I don't know what to do about it then. And not. It doesn't matter what yes, you comment. Your, There's your no way circumstances. To hold, hold, pray for guidance because you're in a particular situation and need particular advice. Yeah. Okay, so JD, um, you, can you ask your question, please? That's the last one we'll take. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm happy to be here with Michael Jones. Um, but my question is like, Every time I bring up Israel or anything, like people just shut down because I think I'm going off the deep end about Jews or something. What, what do you think I should do? Like, well, you have to be. Hello. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm. I'm. I'm in the same. Everyone's in the same situation. Everyone has been intimidated by this thing. But the question. So the question is, uh, can we be specific here? Can can look? I I know I know I know it's uh, this is going to make me unpopular, but basically I just like to know: Am I not allowed to criticize Jews? Like I'm I'm in this I'm in this uh, conference in in Iran, and they got the camera there, and the Israeli snipers are shooting people, uh, women and children, uh, unarmed women and children. Am I not allowed to talk about that? Am I not allowed to? Say, does that make me an anti-Semite if I say this is barbarous yeah. behavior? We have to start somewhere, and we have to be specific, and we have to give some indication that we understand the situation, and we're not, and that we can't not talk about this anymore. Yeah, um, yeah, like I, I like they just think like people think the Israelis, they think they're the same Jews in the Bible, and they think like they actually have right to that land, like they don't have a right to it genetically or anything. Like just, they think the Muslims are crazy because of all. It's ridiculous. Like the Muslims like Jesus more than the Jews do. That's true. 
Pickley, you wanted Pickley. to say something? Uh, can I say one more thing? Uh, our time is up. Uh, Michael Jones. May I ask one question? Um, one uh, one second, please. Yeah, um, one yeah second, I was going to say, you said that the Jews have swung back towards Zionism. You think there's a chance it might swing back towards communism in the future? Sure. Sure. I think that Zionism is, is getting unpopular, among, certainly among Americans. Norman Finkelstein said that. So, yeah, it's not nothing is permanent here. The pendulum will swing back and forth. Quickly, do you want to ask your question? No, no. All I said is that he should be free to criticize anyone that he wants to criticize, regardless of whatever creed or color or race or ethnicity or whatever. You know, if there's a merit to what he's saying, then it doesn't matter about any of those things, right? Yes. That's right. We have that's the essence of Logos's speech. And part of speech is being able to say freely uh, critical comments about things you think are wrong. And if we can't do that, I, I said this after the shooting. I said, don't blame me. They, they were blaming me for the synagogue shooting in, in Pittsburgh. I said, I'm the guy who wants to talk. I'm the guy who's promoting Logos. I'm the guy who's promoting dialogue here. And when you, meaning you, the ADL, when you shut down speech, you're creating violence. So you're the one who's responsible. Thank you. We just, we, we're just uh, aware of the time. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, especially, Dr. Jones, for your time and your input. It's been very insightful. I think um, uh, everyone in the um, in the group has much appreciated what you've um, shared with us tonight. And um, yeah, we are making a recording. We have made one, and we will let you know, and we'll post it on the respective channels so that you can um, retrieve these if you want. Thank you so much. Great. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you Bye. very much, Dr. Jones. Thank you. No, Thank you, Harry. You're welcome.